Welcome to the New Money Review podcast, the future of money in 30 minutes. I'm Paul Amory, the editor of New Money Review. We're a periodical covering the changes in money, which are getting faster and more confusing. New types of money arrive out of nowhere, like Bitcoin. Payments get faster and cheaper. Cash goes out of fashion and mobile payments take over. Some people are on the inside track, others risk being left behind. Money attracts the cleverest criminals who always seem to stay ahead of the game. Our podcast takes a big picture look at these trends. It's not just money that's changing, but technology, finance, law, government and society with it. Each week we interview a leading expert on one or more of these topics. By listening to the podcast, you can stay up to date with what's going on in money and prepare yourself for what lies ahead. On this episode of the podcast, I'm joined by Nick Carter, who's a venture capitalist and a well-known analyst of cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin. Nick, uh, welcome to the New Money Review podcast. Uh, Could you please start by telling listeners a bit about yourself and your background? Thanks, Paul. Yeah, so I uh, am a partner at a venture firm here in Boston called Castle Island Ventures. We invest in seed stage startups building on top of public blockchains, in particular as it pertains to financial infrastructure. And we believe that there is and there will continue to be a convergence between the regulated financial services industry and the somewhat anarchic world of blockchains. And so okay. we, we sit at the intersection. Okay, Okay. great. And you recently wrote an article, uh, which I found very interesting uh, in Coindesk about the the rise of stable coins. And the, 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 you pointed out that the the, the, the volume of stable coins uh, in circulation has jumped from just under $5 billion at the beginning of the year to, well, I think it was $16 billion when you wrote your article. It's now $21, 22000000000 billion, judging by the latest stats. Why do you think this is a significant development? Well, it is the first time I think the crypto industry has ever really manufactured something of immediate relevance to the outside world. Um, and, you know, cryptocurrencies, generic Cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin and Ethereum are exciting and fun, but they didn't necessarily have the same applicability as financial media of exchange or stablecoins do. Stablecoins are really directly relevant. People are happy to transact with them. They're not exposed to the volatility of cryptocurrencies. They don't really have to worry about tax consequences or capital gains, even though actually in the US you probably should if you're using stablecoins. And uh, they just really powerfully demonstrate the value proposition of public blockchains. And, um, you know, if you by tying the settlement assurances of a blockchain with a you know, token, which represents a IOU for some funds held in a bank account, a token that tracks the return of a sovereign currencies, uh, you get something quite powerful. And I think we we're only just beginning to see the applications of stable coins. Now, this isn't to say that what's happening in the crypto industry, aside from that, isn't interesting or worthy of our attention. It's just that I believe that stable coins are really the first killer app of crypto. Okay, so just to, to be clear what these are, these are these are, are tokens that I can transfer for, or anyone can transfer from their, I guess, mobile phone-based wallet to another person's wallet. It's like exchanging a dollar bill, but it's just a crypto version of a dollar bill. Exactly. And, and the analogy is quite apt because we're actually talking about a virtualized um, b- bill, I would say. I mean, these are, these are digital bearer assets. So it's kind of the dream of digital cash realized. And, and it's actually uh, quite profound because 
stable coins have reasonably good uh, privacy assurances. Uh, so the same way that when you transact with physical cash, you have good privacy. It's kind of the same with stable coins, um, and which is much unlike other you know, digital transfer methods like PayPal or Venmo. So stable coins are actually quite unique in that respect. Right. And then, so these dollar transfers or these token transfers are not passing through the banking system. Yeah. I mean, they settle on blockchains. Now there are connections to the banking system most of, most of the time uh, where the reserves for the stable coins are held in banks, which is the case for about 95% of stable coins. Uh, so there is some dependency on the banking system, but the administrators for these stable coins are not authorizing every transaction the way that a fintech company might. And so really the relationship is, for the most part, when using a stable coin, it's between you and your counterparty, and it's mediated by a blockchain, which is not you know controlled by anyone. So it, it, you have significantly more autonomy than you would uh, when using the financial system. Okay, and I understand that you you prefer to use the, the term crypto dollars rather than stable coins for some of these tokens. What why is that? Yeah, well, as an American, I guess that might sound uh, somewhat chauvinistic uh, or uh, or well, given that most of them are dollar denominated, that's that's fair enough. But why why do you want to call it crypto dollar rather than uh, a dollar stable coin? Yeah, so I mean, yeah, first of all, they're they're mostly dollars. So I I think I, I tallied them up a while back, and I got about ninety seven percent dollars in terms of what they reference. Uh, that number might be different today. Uh, first of all, it's a reference to euro dollars, which refers to sort of bank deposits that circulate outside of the U.S., outside of the aegis of the Fed um, in offshore banks. And euro dollars are understood to be less regulated than dollars in the kind of Federal Reserve uh, and the U.S. commercial banking system. So first of all, it's a kind of a sly reference to euro dollars. Uh, second of all, stable coins is a little re- bit redundant because if something is referencing a sovereign currency, sovereign currencies sort of are, well, at least the dollar is fairly stable. So it seems a little bit redundant to insert stable in there as the prefix. Uh, and I think crypto dollars contains more information about the nature of the thing. Crypto kind of refers to the lack of encumbrances and the fact that it circulates on blockchains. So that's why I prefer it to stable coins. Yeah. I, I was very interested in the analogy you make with euro dollars, uh, partly because, you know, that's uh, part of my personal background from, from previous jobs. But um, I, I, you know, I know a, a bit about that history and the fact that the euro dollar market originated in the 1950s and 1960s in Europe and in London and Switzerland in particular. Um, I understand for two reasons. One was that the the holders of dollars, uh, such as the Soviet Union, uh, which although it was a communist country, had had dollars from its um, exports, and it didn't want to hold them in the U.S. banking system. So it wanted to; it was scared about having them confiscated or at least, at least frozen uh, by the U.S. authorities. Uh, and secondly, there was there were there was a, a cap on dollar interest rates payable within the U.S., and that that allowed people based in London and, and Switzerland to have more freedom. They could pay higher interest rates on euro dollar deposits and and, uh, and attract funds that way. So it, it, it's it's kind of a nice uh, historical analogy you're making there because crypto dollars are, uh, as you described them, are a kind of uh, reaction to, um, let's say, the, the stringent conditions that go with, you know, moving dollars around in the global financial markets. Um, you know, I just wonder if you could expand a bit more about what those you know, conditions are and why crypto dollars might be attractive on that basis. 
Yeah, that's that's a very apt uh, historical anecdote uh, that you introduced there because crypto dollars were introduced in the first place because the regulated financial system was interfacing very poorly with the crypto industry. Uh, it, you know, the the first real popular crypto dollar was Tether, which was created by Bitfinex, so that they could maintain a relationship between traders and depositors and users without necessarily having to go through banks. And uh, traders could deposit tethers on the exchange and receive tethers instead of having to send wires back and forth. And of course, Bitfinex has had lots and lots of banking issues, as we all know, uh, still do to this day. Um, But so Tether was initially devised as a method to settle between this exchange and their end users. And then over time, people realized, hey, we can do a lot more with this. We can maybe create closed-loop economies. We can conduct commerce, and we can use these dollar-redeemable tokens as media of exchange. We can use them for lending, for collateral. And so out of that initial narrow use case, which was motivated by the fact that Bitfinex had really weak banking relationships, because for the most part, banks don't like to touch the crypto industry, Uh, we got this really vibrant ecosystem of crypto dollars. So I would say very, very apt uh, historical analogy. And, um, you know, the interesting thing is you only really need a few issuing kind of banks to take the plunge and say, hey, yeah, we'll hold hold dollars in reserve against which you can issue stable coins. Because then the stable coin can circulate arbitrarily on a global basis. So there's an interesting arbitrage where you don't need banks globally to be bought in to the notion of stablecoins. You just need a couple plucky banks to stand up and say, yeah, we'll, we'll help issue these things, we'll custody the dollars. And then the stablecoins can, can circulate globally frictionlessly. Uh, so you just need one bank to kind of export uh, some like legal assurances as to the relationship between the IOUs and the collateral or the reserves, and then the system can work for anyone, regardless of where you are. I mean, Tether, I think, initially was being issued by a bank in the Caribbean. I mean, yeah, I don't know where their bank partners are today, but um, and of it course, was BNY Mellon for a while, and then they they uh, they broke up. Uh, yeah. yeah, so yeah, I guess they've they've found some better banks uh, to support the system today. I mean, today it's much more sustainable generally with other crypto dollar issuers like USDC. They're using some onshore banks here in the US. You only need a few early adopters to take the plunge. And then you you know that's and then the the blockchain itself does the rest because it, it can mediate the circulation of these things worldwide. Okay, let me let me ask you that point because we with the we know that the um, the clearing of US dollar wholesale transactions has to take place in New York at the books in the books of the New York Federal Reserve. So could the US authorities not place some uh, pressure or put some pressure on on these banks that are, let's say, banking Tether and other crypto dollars around the world and say, look, we don't want you to do this. Otherwise, we're going to stop your dollar clearing uh, facilities. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And and um, ultimately, I think there's there's a, a few large institutions that, that clear most of those dollars in New York. And uh, I think that's why the, the New York Attorney General and the Southern District of New York, these kind of... Uh, legal enforcement entities took a keen interest in Tether, um, even when it was still very incipient and very young. They recognized the threat to their quasi-monopoly over dollar clearing. And uh, that's why 
the NYAG has been going after Bitfinex and Tether for a long time, largely unsuccessfully so far. Uh, but it doesn't surprise me in the slightest that they're sort of harassing them, whether or not there's any merit to the case. I'm not going to opine on it either way. I don't know the facts of the case, but it's not surprising at all that this legal machinery has been put into effect to sort of um, harass, you know, the largest stablecoin issuer. Right, but since the New York uh, Attorney General um, launched its lawsuit against Tether and Bitfinex, um, I think early last year or the end of the year before, um, the the volume of Tethers in circulation has gone up from three billion to seventeen billion. So either the market is not paying any attention to that, or you know, what does that tell us uh, about you know the 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 long arm of the U.S. authorities? Most you know in the in the banking system people would comply automatically with what the U.S. authorities told them in the past. Um, is this just a different set of entities and they, people really, the, 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 you know, the enforcement powers are, are simply just not as strong in the crypto as they, as they are in the traditional financial system. Well, I think the BitMEX case study tells us that if the U.S. regulators want their pound of flesh, they're going to be able to extract it regardless. And if I think it's just a question of political will. And maybe under the prior administration, there wasn't sufficient political will to really instrumentalize all the necessary steps in order to, you know, determine which banks were servicing Tether and to, yeah, I don't know exactly how it works, but to interrupt their activities. Um, It could be the case that under a more hawkish regulatory regime that we get in the next four years here, that's going to change dramatically. Uh, So we'll see. I mean, it could be brought into notions of um of sanctions evasion if uh if any of these stable coins are found to be employed in that respect maybe it becomes a a strategic issue a a notion of um you know because sanctions are the way that this country kind of wages war these days so you know the issue could be elevated on the agenda and i have no doubt that if there is enough political will then the u.s can can do pretty much whatever they want, especially as it pertains to the financial system. So, so, so this story is by no means over. We, you know, probably at the first or second chapter in the book, we have to watch out for what's coming next. Oh, yeah. And um, if I had to guess, I would say I don't think uh, Tether exists in three years' time. I've been wrong in the past, past, of course. But the interesting thing is that there are more stablecoin issuers now. There are some very multi-billion dollar stablecoin issuers that are not Tether. So regardless, I think the cat is out of the bag. Right. So even though the total value of crypto dollars at whatever, 21 or 22 billion is still tiny compared to the US monetary base or the commercial bank deposits in the US, I think $16 trillion, um, it's worth watching this, uh, this segment of the markets with, uh, with close interest. Yeah. And keep in mind, it's not just about the depository base. I mean, the velocity of M2 is something. I might just get this wrong. I think the velocity of M2 might be something preposterously low, like 1.5. You know, feel free to fact check me on that. But anyway, the money supply in this country doesn't turn over very quickly. A lot of it's kind of trapped. Um, Whereas if you look at the velocity of crypto dollars, it turns over at an incredibly high rate. So these assets are not just sitting there inert. They're actually being used transactionally. Uh, I mean, we're talking about velocities, and I'm using a naive figure here, but we're talking about velocities that are in the 50 to kind of 100 range. 
Uh, so these stable coins are settling billions and billions of dollars every single day, five, six plus billion dollars, uh, which which sort of suggests to me that there's an enormous vibrancy, uh, which their you know outstanding float uh, doesn't necessarily do justice to if you just look at the float figures. Right, and just to, to to remind me and listeners, so when it, when when a crypto dollar or a stablecoin transaction settles on a public blockchain, it, it inherits the settlement characteristics of that blockchain. So, um, is that right? So, if you're in Bitcoin, yeah. it's you know a block every ten minutes, uh, and in Ethereum, it's whatever um, thirty seconds. Is that right, or a minute or something? Uh, Fifteen seconds for Ethereum. Fifteen seconds. Yeah, yeah. You, you say that they. In, yeah, you're right. They, they sort of free ride uh, on. The, on the underlying blockchains, um, yeah. but it, to the extent you think the blockchains do a good job of settling value, then you would imagine that those uh, crypto dollar settlements are also secure. Right. So, I, uh, in a recent uh, interview you had with Tony McLaughlin of, of City, uh, you pointed out that stablecoin transactions uh, actually account for more settled settled value on Ethereum than the Ether token itself than the native token of the Ethereum network. So, um, you know, there, there's some argument that they're already crowding out uh, other transactions on that particular blockchain. You know, how stable is this arrangement? Uh, it's, it doesn't sound very stable to me. It's a great question. Yeah, there, there's, a, there's a dollarization happening on blockchains. Um, Bitcoin sort of avoided this because Bitcoin is overtly hostile to non-native units circulating on the chain because of some certain security considerations. The Bitcoin developers actually didn't want anything that wasn't Bitcoin circulating on the Bitcoin network, which was uh, quite foresighted in my view. Uh, Ethereum took a different tack. They wanted to encourage any and all financial activity on the Ethereum blockchain, including other non-native tokens. With the native token being Ether. And so now the state of affairs is that there's more kind of dollar tokens circulating on Ethereum than Ether, um, or rather there's more transactional volume, which is settled in these dollar tokens. Uh, one effect of that is that it's kind of parasitic, in my opinion, because you have, um, when you transact with Ether, you have to hold it for a certain amount of time. You have to use it as working capital. If you're using it in a smart contract, you have to lock it up. That means you have exposure to Ether. That's good for the security of the blockchain. Remember that the rewards that are paid to validators, to miners, are denominated in Ether. So if I am holding Ether so that I can conduct commerce on Ethereum, I am buoying the price of Ether by having positive exposure to it for a non-zero period of time. And that means that the security of the Ethereum network benefits because the unit price of Ether goes up. However, if I choose to transact with dollars, I don't have any exposure to Ether. I might just need a tiny amount of Ether to pay gas fees. So I'm benefiting from the settlement assurances and the security of the Ethereum network without really giving back. So that's why you could sort of describe it as parasitic. And let's say if all transactions on Ethereum were happening in stable coins and no one was holding Ether as work in capital um, or using Ether in contracts then the security of Ethereum might suffer dramatically because the unit price were to fall. And then the question is, would that network actually be stable at that point? Right. So what about the effect of uh, transaction fees? Because it's been clear in the last few months, Ethereum transaction fees have been, have been going up steadily. They, 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 uh, in aggregate terms, they exceeded the transaction fees on Bitcoin a few months ago. Um, do those get, you know, for, uh, let's say, a, a crypto dollar user wanting to, 
use a, a, a token that's based on settles on Ethereum. Do those fees get passed on in any way, or are they are they purely are they really parasitic? They don't, they're not paying at all for the cost of the network. No, I mean, yeah, the fees are the way that crypto dollars give back to the network because you have to pay fees in Ethereum. That's the protocol rule. Yeah. Although you could probably devise a way to pay the fees in kind, as in in crypto dollars. Um, you know, for instance, I could just out of band pay a miner with a ACH or a wire transfer. I could physically give a miner cash completely outside the confines of the Ethereum network and ask, I could email them my transactional information and ask them to include the transaction in the Ethereum blockchain. That would be one way to pay a miner out of band, ignoring the protocol rules. So you could probably devise a way to pay fees in USDC or USDT uh, without requiring the usage of ETH. Because like, if we're going to be real, I mean, it's a huge friction to ask people to juggle multiple currencies all the time and have this reserve of Ether for fees but then you really want to transact in a stable coin. So my guess is that people devise ways to trans- to pay fees uh, in the stable coin, which would can which would be another move which would marginalize the role of ether in the system. Okay, but those fees are being paid ultimately by the crypto dollar and stable coin holders. Yeah, by the users of the stable yeah. coin. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. If we look in sort of very broad terms at the way the legacy financial system is 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 built, um, you, you have this idea, I suppose, of the central bank standing as the ultimate guarantor of settlement. And uh, they're at the center of the system. They issue so-called high-powered money. And then you've got the banks in a kind of concentric circle around them. And then other dollar holders you know, further out in another concentric circle. You know, to what extent is this trend you've been describing um, you know, could it be flipping the the whole structure of the financial system that we end up with something completely different at the center of the, um, the settlement system, you know, let's say a public blockchain, and something, you know, pretty, pretty similar to what we are used to uh, further out, but it's just run on a totally separate network? Well, the, the way stablecoins work today doesn't really interrupt the or alter the structure of the financial system too much because we're still talking about uh, commercial bank liabilities. So the actual stable coins that you and I might transact with, what those actually are is just a claim on uh, some dollars um, or some liabilities of a commercial bank. That commercial bank doesn't hold all of the dollars in deposit. We're not talking about um, you know fully reserved institutions, unfortunately. We're talking about uh, commercial banks that might have you know, a, a capital ratio or liquidity ratio in keeping with Basel, you know, something probably in the single digit range or low double yeah. digits. Uh, so nothing fundamental is changing. I think what might be changing a little bit is that stable coins kind of flatten out the topology of the correspondent banking system. So they make it much easier to settle funds cross border. And so to the extent that you have this pretty, uneven system whereby the further you get out of the further you get from the new york you know core you know the further you get into the global south latin america sub-saharan africa uh, where it gets really expensive to remit funds because you're lots and lots of hops away that those that might be massively um cheapened because you only have to do one hop to get to this sort of global clearinghouse one hop to get to the blockchain um and so potentially there could be significant efficiencies found in remittance. Um, However, 
you know, ultimately we're still relying on the commercial bank system. I think what could happen here, though, as the CBDC conversation evolves a little bit, is that you know the the central banks here realize they're not retail facing institutions. They're not really willing or able to service uh, and issue base money to retail user bases. Uh, you know the Federal Reserve doesn't have the capacity to have a relationship with 350 million Americans. Uh, so they outsource that capacity to both fintechs and potentially stablecoin issuers. So maybe, you know, in a few years' time, instead of relying on, you know, commercial banks as stablecoin issuers currently do, they could just get direct access to Federal Reserve. And those IOUs would become liabilities of the central bank as opposed to commercial banks, which would render them less risky. Right, because there's you're not exposed to an insolvency of the bank, yeah. uh, and you know I think that's actually maybe the platonic ideal of a stablecoin. You have direct connectivity to the Federal Reserve. We're, we're talking about claims on base money, and so you don't have to layer in any additional risk about bank going bust uh, or being over leveraged. So I think that's maybe how this could develop, and that would be a very powerful force in terms of disintermediation, of course. So bad, that's bad news for the banks, but it's it's not, and they, the, the you know the consumer may not may not see much uh, difference from what what he or she actually experiences. Well, I think it would generate a strong consumer surplus if we're giving uh, people access to uh, base money uh, directly. Which technically, that's what physical currency is. Physical currency is base money, but yeah. it's it's become increasingly marginalized, uh, and for the most part, our experience with money is commercial bank. Uh, liabilities as opposed to base money. And so this would reverse that trend. It would increase the ratio of base money to kind of M2. Right. So th- this is the, the big question faced by every central bank that's looking at introducing its own digital currency. It has to decide you know, whether what kind of model it wants to introduce, whether it wants to have some I- intermediary-based model that allows, as you say, um, perhaps uh, companies with, with better experience of dealing with millions of, of users to to handle the uh, the interface with the with, with the clients uh, and and then just grant access to those um, to the clearing facilities at the at the central bank in in the in the central bank's base money yeah I would say in the west it's very unclear what it's going to look like we're still at the experimentation stage uh, and a lot of these questions are actually really political questions you know how much privacy would we let people in a CBdc system have? But that's why I like stable coins, because they're not waiting for any political mandates. We're just talking about private sector entities that said, well, you know, we're going to go ahead and issue fast settling digital cash, because that's what the market wants. And so the market's shown overwhelming demand for that. Uh, so in, if, if that is, to me, the greatest legitimation of this idea that, yes, there should be something that mirrors the, the qualities of physical cash in a digital context, that unambiguously seems to be the case. And central bankers have to now bear this in mind when they're considering their, the designs of their central bank digital currencies. If they don't offer the uh, users the same privacy protections as, as exist for cash, then presumably there's going to be more money flooding into these uh, unregulated crypto dollars uh, at the expense of um, central bank money. That's right. And that's why I like that they exist as an alternative because it, it counteracts. If, if we get a tyrannical you know, CBDC system, which is effectively a surveillance dragnet. And, you know, let's say if I try and uh, 
you know, legally buy a firearm or something, I, I get my, my CBDC account shut down, uh, you know, for doing something that uh, maybe uh, my local central bank branch doesn't like, um, then if, you know, if that's the state of affairs with the CBDC, then people will just opt for private sector alternatives. So I think the fact that stable coins exist and they keep growing is a really great countervailing force. It forces discipline on the point on the part of central banks and forces them to listen to market forces. Right. And when it comes to the policymakers in the US, because as you pointed out at the beginning of the uh, discussion, you know, almost all the stable coins are uh, dollar denominated. When it comes to the the, the US authorities who've you know relied on this uh, monopoly power to to clear dollar transactions as a way of um, having geopolitical um, uh, power you know, around the world. Um, your, your, your argument is that they should not be too concerned about having um, the, the emergence of crypto dollars uh, because you know, th- th- this is going to still keep uh, users around the world within the kind of dollar sphere uh, rather than the, the jettisoning the dollar completely. Yeah, my view is that the US should self-disrupt as it pertains to the dollar. And, it, you know... Uh, if you consider sort of organizational theory, this doesn't happen very often. You know, the the entities that end up being disrupted are typically disrupted by competitors, not themselves. Um, but the most foresighted organizations can sometimes disrupt their own business model. So the, the dollar business model is um, using dollars uh, for sanctions and in- installing the dollars that default, uh, you know, medium of exchange for commodities transactions worldwide in particular for oil and so on and that ensures that the dollar is the default unit of uh, you know trade receipts and debt globally uh, and this is incredibly convenient for the US it means they don't even have to send cruise missiles if they want to go to war with someone they can just uh, threaten to cut them off from the banking system this is terrifying even to China uh, and so you know, the problem with this situation is that it's kind of reaching the stage of morbidity and everybody's trying to build alternatives as fast as they possibly can. Even our allies are trying to build alternatives and figure out how to bank with Iran and so on. Uh, so my pitch to U.S. policymakers is, hey, endorse a neutral alternative. Endorse these dollars which are settling on public blockchains, which are inherently more open uh, and accessible and you will retain primacy within that system, but you'll probably have to give up a little bit of that political discretion. So you might have to go back to prosecuting things in the domain of meat space as opposed to um, you know, just uh, leaning on this extremely convenient uh, lever of, uh, of threatening to cut people off from the bank system. But yes, that's my pitch to, to U.S. policymakers. Embrace uh, a kind of a, a neutral alternative because, in my view, that is something that comports with American values of freedom, uh, individualism, uh, privacy, autonomy. Uh, so, you know, t- TBD on that, uh, but that's that's certainly my view. Right. And have you had any response to that uh, argument? <laughs> well, on the rare occasion that I've managed to get an audience. <laughs> The central banker, I tell them this. Uh, <laughs> I don't think they're listening to me just yet. Okay. Well, it's uh, they certainly, I imagine, um, watching more closely than they were a year or two ago, given the, the rise in this uh, in transactions and value in this segment of the market. They are. They are. I can attest to that. But uh, interestingly, it seems to be Libra which grabbed their attention, which is very funny to me because Libra doesn't really exist yet. 
And yet we have all these deployed in production, currently functioning stablecoin systems, which I seem less interested in, which is quite interesting because, you know, these are real. Libra is still kind of a fiction. It doesn't exist yet. So who knows what Libra is going to look like? These stablecoins are real. People are using them. Yeah, yeah. All right, Nick. Well, thank you very much for your time. It's been a very interesting chat and uh, look forward to staying in touch. My pleasure. Thanks, Paul. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the New Money Review podcast, The Future of Money in 30 Minutes. You can find a write-up of this episode at our website, newmoneyreview.com, together with links to any important documents or sites mentioned during the discussion. If you enjoyed this podcast, please like it, share it, or tell a friend about it. At our website, newmoneyreview.com, you can also sign up to our newsletter, which will keep you informed of all New Money Review articles and podcasts. If you'd like to support New Money Review, you can do so via Patreon or using cryptocurrency. Details of how to do this are on the homepage of our website.